Hello, welcome to Nature Mono, an environmental humanities podcast. I'm your host, John L. Pitt. This is episode three of season one, Oceanic Japan. My guest for this episode is Dr. C.N. Klaus, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at American University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Klaus is author of the 2020 monograph, Drawing the Sea Near, Satoumi and Coral Reef Conservation in Okinawa. Drawing the Sea Near is an ethnography based on Klaus's fieldwork on the Okinawan island of Ishigaki. Ishigaki is well known for its strand of rare blue coral, which is the world's largest. The small coastal town of Shiraho on Ishigaki is also home to a field station for the world's largest conservation organization, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, or WWF. Klaus's book is an anthropological account of this field station, which is called Coral Village, and how it learned, and continues to learn, how to conduct coral reef conservation in a way that is inclusive and socially just. As it moves through scales, it brings readers into boardrooms and then out into the sea itself. It gives voice to environmentalists and the inhabitants of Shiraho, and highlights the efforts made by both parties to better understand each other. It's a work that looks to reconceptualize the very idea of conservation, and it allows readers to experience the sensory pleasures of the sea in the process. It raises important questions about Japanese tradition and Okinawa's place within it. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. C. and Klaus. Well, thank you for joining uh, me today. And, you know, I want to talk about your really excellent new book, Drawing the Sea Near. Um, but before we get into, you know, any of the like real specifics of the book, I kind of wanted to start with a, a broader question. Um, and so one of my recent guests here on the podcast was Jacobina Arch, who's an environmental historian. Uh, and we discussed how you know, historians of Japan have been relatively slow to consider the ocean, right, as a part of Japanese history. Um, and so you know, I was taken by the fact that you offer something of a similar sentiment in the introduction of your book. Um, you say that environmental anthropology in its terra centricity uh, has been surprisingly neglectful of the oceans. And so I'm, I'm curious um, why you think that's the case, this, this surprising neglect of the oceans in environmental anthropology, and whether or not you think maybe things are changing with that. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, it's not that the ocean was completely ignored. I think depending on how we frame it, there has been a long tradition of work that pays some attention to the ocean, right? If we look, for example, at the work of Yanagida Kunio, um, we see the ocean playing a very important role in the development of Japan as a nation. So, and, and within anthropology itself, there has been work in maritime studies for sure. I'm just thinking about the work of Bonnie McKay and James Atchison, among others uh, who were really looking into sea laborers beginning in the 1980s, for example. 
So there is a lot of important work that uh, predates this recent interest in ocean studies, but we don't really see anything that begins to coalesce into an ocean studies until the past decade or so. Why? I don't know. I think this is a really great question and I've thought a lot about it. Um, in my book, I mention a quote by the French semiotician Roland Barthes, who spoke about the ocean as being devoid of signs. Mm -hmm. uh, which really reflects this view of the ocean as some sort of final frontier, as nature through and through, without any evidence of culture. And of course, this isn't the case, um, but we see this, I think, in, in especially in, in Western interpretations of the mm -hmm. sea. As far as what's changing, I don't know. I mean, I really think that there are technological advances that have allowed us to know more about the sea and to see more of the sea and uh, to, to gain a better purchase on it. But I also think that the conditions of the oceans themselves are playing a part in the shifting awareness. You know, we see rapidly shifting conditions of the ocean because of climate change. Mm -hmm. um, we hear pretty regularly about the massive garbage patch that we've created in the ocean. And there are other ways in which activists and artists and others have been bringing the ocean to our attention. Um, in ways that I think are really uh, resonating with people right now. In any case, the shift is palpable because now you can search for ocean studies books on Duke University Press, for example. Right? Right. <laughs> There's a proliferation of books in the past few years that really point to this body of work. And uh, of course, within which this podcast itself is also situated. Yeah, that's, that's the hope <laughs> for sure. Um, that's great, and I, you know, I want to stick with this kind of question about anthropology a little bit. You know, I'm someone who doesn't work in the field of anthropology, but you know, in my teaching, I do rely pretty heavily on anthropological texts. Um, you know, for for context and for getting students to kind of think differently about literature and film, right? And so there are all these really fascinating um, works that are coming out. It's kind of this growing corpus uh, that you know I've seen referred to as more than human ethnographies. Um, you know, you use the term environmental anthropology. These are works like Annette Singh's Mushroom at the End of the World, Eduardo Cohn's How Forests Think, or these really, really rich texts. Um, and so, you know, do you see yourself as kind of part of this new strain in anthropology? Does it feel like a new direction for the study of anthropology? Um, and if so, do you think that this is something that's also kind of growing within the study of, of Japan anthropologically? Yes, I mean, I would be happy to be categorized in the company of the scholars you mentioned. Um, you know, I'm certainly an environmental anthropologist. Uh, my work is indebted to the research of scholars like Anna Singh and Tanya Lee and Shiho Satsuka and Paige West, uh, who are arguably environmental anthropologists. Um, I think what you're referring to, though, is more of uh, this body of work that's being interpreted as new uh, within multi-species ethnography. And I also find this work very compelling. Uh, I love reading with it and I love thinking with it <clears throat> because it explicitly asks us to consider humans as produced within a series of ecological processes. It encourages us to take ecology much more seriously. And at the same time, it counters anthropocentrism the anthropocentrism that we see in a lot of works of anthropology, which are uh, of course mostly about humans. 
So in these multi-species concerns, scholars are really drawing from indigenous intellectuals and thinkers who have long approached the world through these lenses. And so I guess, again, the degree to which this is very new, I think could be questioned, but we do see a coalescence around this sort of literature. And I think some of the best scholarship in this realm really acknowledges and builds on that work while also attending to the political ecology of these multi-species relations. I would classify my book, however, as primarily an organizational ethnography that also seeks to delineate and incorporate the seascape. So maybe it's a seascape ethnography, um, but I wouldn't say that it's a multi-species ethnography. I do see more of this work coming out of Japan. Uh, in Heather Swanson's work, for example, on fish, um, which hopefully she'll have a book coming out soon about that. Also emerging work from scholars like Alyssa Paredes on bananas. Um, I would love to see more of the scholarship. I think it's really fascinating to read. Okay, well, so let's talk about the book, um, you know, in particular then. So this is a book that's based on field work that you conducted on the island of Ishigaki, right? And this is um, conventionally, politically, at least, right, in what's known as Okinawa Prefecture. Uh, and so you explained that, you know, this has been an important site, the island of Ishigaki for international conservation groups, like the WWF, the World Wild World Wildlife Fund for Nature or Worldwide Fund for Nature. I always get it wrong. Um, Everyone does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, what brought you to Ichigaki in the first place, right? So was it that you've long been interested in conservation efforts um, and you knew that you wanted to write about conservation and Ichigaki just happened to be the best place to do this? Or was it that you were more interested in the cultural, cultural and politics of Okinawa and so then the kind of focus on conservation came like later, right? Did you know that you wanted to focus on Okinawa in particular? Yeah, this is a great question. And actually there were two experiences that were significant in shaping my decision to do field work there. Mm -hmm. um, both of them happened before I started my PhD. And the first is that I ended up in Okinawa working at an environmental nonprofit. Um, during the day, this is after I graduated from college. <clears throat> and I was working at this environmental nonprofit during the day and in the evenings, I was the only cook at an Okinawan izakaya. And this is a really long story that involves more than a few events, adventures on boats and my trusty road bike, um, among other things. But for the purposes of this conversation, the most important part of that experience for me was that I would uh, I learned about environmentalism and environmental ideas uh, as they were kind of being promoted and circulated in Okinawa during my day job. Mm. And at night, I would talk with our customers at the izakaya after I made their food. And it was really just a lot of uh, locals. We had a bunch of regulars who came by. And through those conversations, I learned so much more about the fraught relationship that Okinawa had with mainland Japan. And I learned about how the U.S. is implicated in many ways in that relationship. And I had lived in Japan for a year in high school as an exchange student. And during that time, I didn't really learn anything about Okinawa and its place in Japan. 
and I became very curious about Okinawa and I wanted to return to learn more about how Okinawans were navigating the special sets of circumstances that they continue to find themselves in. You know, they're at the mercy of both mainland Japanese projects and US military presence that primarily aid others. And they remain in need of developments that counteract the lingering imperialist legacies um, that exist there. So uh, this curiosity for me had been piqued for sure. And the second experience that was really important for me in choosing Okinawa was <clears throat> work that I did first as an intern and then as a quote unquote social scientist in the science department of the World Wildlife Fund in the United States office located in DC. And in that work, I witnessed the very complicated dynamics that unfold in transnational institutions. Um, in these institutions, you know, funding and expertise are oftentimes situated in the global north and countries in the global south are just made to implement those desires of the global north. And uh, I recognized how problematic those dynamics were. And I really wanted to help understand um, not only how they play out in different places like in Japan, but also understand conditions under which those institutions change to become more socially just. Um, and Okinawa was actually the perfect place to undertake my fieldwork because um, in its relationship with mainland Japan, you see many of these similar dynamics that you see in transnational conservation replicated on the national scale with mainland Japan and Okinawa. And Ishigaki is the site of the only remaining field station of the World Wildlife Fund in Japan. So that's actually how I ended up there. Great. Yeah, I think that's what's, I mean, so fascinating about your book is, and it makes sense that you call it an organizational ethnography, right? Because you come away from it feeling like you've learned so much about Ishigaki, but also about conservation or, you know, organization, how it's run, you know, some of these issues that you were just talking about. So um, that kind of balance, I think, is is really, really, you know, well done. And um, yeah, just really, really great in this book. So. One of the other things that, well, this is, I would say, maybe the, one of the key distinctions, right, that you make in this book um, in terms of conservation is this distinction you make between conservation near and conservation far, right? Um, drawing the sea near is the name of the book, right? So I think you're playing with this question of nearness. So can, maybe you can explain these two different modes of conservation, right? Kind of piggybacking off of um, what you were just talking about. And maybe offer an example from the book, uh, you know, to just kind of help listeners get a sense of this difference that you're pointing out between conservation near and conservation far. Sure. Yes. Um, so the book really opens with uh, kind of fleshing out this a dynamic that we see in a lot of conservation projects. Um, and there is an underlying ideology that is uh, very present in transnational environmental organizations like the World Wildlife Fund, but definitely not uh, only specific to the WWF. Um, but these ideas are very heavily influenced by United States cultural ideas of what ideal nature is mm -hmm. and how it should be tended to. And key concepts here to think with are uh, wilderness, protectionism, uh, what oftentimes is referred to as fortress conservation. And these are ideas that have been elaborated um, beautifully in the work of scholars like William Cronin in his essay on wilderness in, in the American imagination. Um, 
there's been so much scholarship in social science that shows how these ideas have had incredibly negative impacts. Um, not only in the US where we've seen the displacement of a lot of native uh, indigenous peoples, but also around the world. And um, this alienation that's engendered by invoking and uh, implementing wilderness ideologies is clear. Um, and this, uh, so when I'm talking about conservation farm, I'm really talking about this form of conservation in which distancing is the primary modality uh, through which conservation unfolds. So distancing is not just a result of protectionist policies, it's a reflection of this broader set of distancing logics that underlie the work of transnational conservation. And one way that we see this happening is limiting and bounding sensorial encounters. Um, people like Katya Neves and Jim Igo might refer to this as the conservation of spectacle where nature really becomes transformed into something that we see, but we're not supposed to touch or to taste. And this is, um, this is what I mean by conservation far, a conservation that privileges these distancing practices. Conservation near, on the other hand, is predicated on different kinds of relationships with surroundings. And it's really not about distancing, but rather about proximity. So here you could see that touch and taste and smell, in addition to seeing, are primary ways through which nature affect forms. And the keywords here for conservation near are things like close observation, light, patience, <coughs> proximity. Conservation near, in contrast to conservation far, nurtures an ecology of care, but not in this paternalistic sense of needing to protect non-humans, but rather in a spirit of collaboration and curiosity that promotes socio-natural vitality. Of course, I should say that conservation near and conservation far are heuristic devices, and that even transnational conservation exists on much more of a spectrum. But this is also one of the points of the book. Um, I would say that our scholarly investigations thus far into conservation have been weighted heavily towards investigating conservation far. And this is incredibly important work that has had real practical effects for transforming conservation practice. But this work can also help to bolster and reinforce the narratives of wilderness ideologies that are promoted by the organizations themselves. So I think in the book, I'm trying to point to some of the many other things that are happening within transnational conservation organizations in order to unpack some of them a little more thoroughly. That's great. Yeah, I mean, the, the kind of sensual qualities that you're talking about um, in terms of conservation near, right, these, this collaborative engagement, um, kind of care work that you're talking about. I mean, it really comes through in the book. And I think that's why I'm tempted as a reader to see it as a kind of multi-species ethnography, right, um, is because of that sort of give and take, right, that sort of sensual engagement with the sea that takes place here. Um, yeah, I'm certainly alluding to it. Uh, but I don't know if I can claim it fully as a multi-species ethnography. <laughs> Well, you're, you're the anthropologist, so I, you know, <laughs> I will defer to you. Um, but that actually kind of brings me to my next question, uh, which is that, you know, as I'm reading this book, I almost feel like there's this kind of meta quality, you know, to what's happening here. Um, in when you're, you know, you're describing the WWF's efforts at kind of developing a conservation near approach, right? And so it was as if, you know, those who were working for the WWF had to, in a 
certain sense, become anthropologists in their own right, right? They had to really study the people of Ishigaki, learn how to see, you know, the relationship to the coral reefs, what that was like there, um, right? And, and so they kind of developed this idea of a vernacular, right? A vernacular relationship to the sea. Um, so this is kind of another big question, I guess, about anthropology, works of environmental anthropology, like your own. But, you know, I, I guess I'm intrigued by a text like this that is sort of narrating a conservation near approach. Um, and it is so focused on this vernacular, sensual, sensory engagement with the sea. Can these, you know, really focused in vernacular um, takes offer something beyond the particular places that they discuss? I certainly hope it does. Um, I guess the jury is still out on that, but I, I do in writing this book attempt to join the work of many others who in their scholarship and practice have attempted to change the practices of transnational conservation to make it more socially just. And I'm thinking about the work of scholars like Janice Alcorn, and Diane Russell, who have been very engaged in, uh, in attempting to oftentimes from the inside of these institutions, change them uh, by decentralizing their practices, um, teaching people that you really need to build on local understandings in order to have you know, sustainable, socially just, and environmentally effective conservation practices. So I purposely wrote a book that's jargon light. Uh, I, I say that as an anthropologist, so I don't really know if it counts as jargon light. Um, you know, I don't know if a, a person who's not oftentimes reading anthropology would think that there's not a lot of jargon in here, but I really did attempt to write a book that was readable so that it could be accessible uh, by people who work on or within conservation because these kinds of examples, I think, do really illuminate the work of, of scholars who have long argued that conservation really will be much more effective if conservationists start to see more like anthropologists or other social scientists would. Conservation is a social enterprise, um, period. So figuring out how to unpack and understand and interpret that sociality is incredibly important to making effective projects. In that, I hope that it's really seen as a work of public anthropology. I've continued to really build on this work and recent research that's currently under review, which looks more specifically at social scientists within the centers, uh, the international headquarters of the largest transnational conservation organizations. And there I'm specifically looking at how social scientists who work for transnational conservation attempt to disrupt hegemonic ways of conceptualizing and practicing conservation. So it is much more of a big picture look at what I'm doing in the book itself. Um, and I personally have theoretical interests and expertise as a collaborative act, as well as in how transformational change within institutions unfolds. But I'm also interested in the pragmatic details of how such shifts unfold through the labor of individuals and activists. And so I'm playing with this, you know, how do I produce that scholarship in a way that speaks both to my theoretical and intellectual 
interests as well as to the more pragmatic concerns of people who work within those institutions and are positioned in ways to actually affect change within them. Yeah, that's a, it's a difficult tension for sure. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, I, I can see all kinds of tensions that you're working through, right? I mean, you, you mentioned this is a jargon light book and I, I agree with you. I think it is very readable, um, but of course that always has to be balanced with the kind of vernacular, right? That you're working through in the text as well. Um, and so, you know, one of the key terms that comes up in the book and I guess this is maybe part of the question is whether we can see this as a vernacular term or not. I think this is something you're exploring, right? Um, is this term sato umi, right? And so your second chapter is devoted to historicizing this concept of sato umi. And you point to some of the tensions that surround um, the use of this term within the context of Okinawa. Right? So you write how Okinawa in many ways is considered you know, a really exemplary site um, of sato umi in Japan. But at the same time, right, you say that, quote, Okinawa is an unorthodox place to discover the emergence of a nature ideal based on a longstanding Japanese traditions, right? So maybe you could explain a little bit what sato umi is, what does that term refer to? Um, and then, you know, kind of help us understand what some of these issues are that make the application of the term to Okinawa unorthodox, as you, as you put it. Sure. Yeah, sato umi is a Japanese word that is made up of two terms. Sato means village and umi means sea. And this term really refers to cultivated seascapes that are actively produced by various human and non-human actors. So it's essentially encultured nature or what some scholars would refer to as a socio nature. As an anthropologist, I love this term. Um, I think it really captures so, a socio nature. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And like all nature concepts, Satoumi represents an ideal, idealized vision of nature. Um, in this case, it's a process-oriented metaphor that bridges and transcends domains that function as opposites within a wilderness paradigm. And so for this reason, I think it's really interesting to consider what Satoumi is doing for conservation um, in, in Japan, where uh, conservation through the, you know, in the work of WBF has more often relied on wilderness as its ideal. It's a curious term to describe Okinawa natures because it is interpreted as a traditional Japanese concept. And this is because it's tied to the idea of Satoyama, the affiliated term that refers to cultivated forests. And Satoyama is a term that was coined at least a century before Okinawa even became part of Japan. So both of these terms, Sato Umi and Satoyama, <clears throat> have surged in interest in the past decade uh, because of their prominence in the international meetings for the Convention on Biological Diversity that was held in Nagoya in 2010. And a lot of that chapter is just thinking through how this term uh, alongside Satoyama came to prominence uh, within Japan and came to really stand in for a quote unquote Japanese approach to conservation. Um, in the chapter, I really trace the rise of Satoumi in order to illustrate how it was shaped and reshaped into an idea that was readily identifiable to others as a viable conservation imaginary. It certainly didn't start out that way. 
And uh, in fact, Sato Umi does not have the storied history that Sato Yama does. There's no document from the 1700s where you see the word appearing, um, but it's kind of interpreted in the same or thought of in the same in the same breath in a lot of ways. And so thinking about how, thinking through how Sato Umi as an idea became significant for conservation there um, is important for understanding not only how Japan sees itself within the broader realm of conservation action, uh, but also it becomes very important to the book because this idea of Sato Umi provided a nature ideal that legitimated the more locally attuned approach of the field office of Coral Village. And without being able to depend on and draw on this term, I don't know how far the director of Coral Village would have been able to get with his projects that looked quite different than anything that had been attempted at the field office before. So the chapter takes readers from the Ocean Expo of 1975, which was held in Okinawa, which was newly returned, quote unquote, to Japan, up to some contemporary meetings in which conservationists in Japan are really seeking to articulate that Japanese approach to marine conservation. I was really fascinated uh, in that chapter with the, the expo. I hadn't realized the connection to the Metabolist School of Architecture, right, with, with that expo that was really new to me, it was great. Yeah, I had a hard time dragging myself away from the archives reading about all of that stuff. It's really fascinating to see the connections and to think about how these futuristic technologies um, were presented there at the 1975 Expo. And then also the way that Okinawans themselves were presented and appeared sure. in, in the Expo, what the Expo itself was doing politically at the time, which is really demonstrating to the world that Okinawa was again uh, Japanese territory. So there is a lot going on. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Great. Well, I want to talk um, a little bit about your fourth chapter, uh, which is called Gustatory Engagements. Um, this is a great chapter. I, you know, I, I, again, it kind of gets back to that, you know, sensory, um, uh, you know, attachment engagement with the, the sea that you're drawing out in this book. Um, and so, you know, you show how one of the most effective ways, right, to foster a conservation mindset um, among the community in Ichigaki has actually been through the kind of deep consideration of how the sea provides food, right, for humans. Um, and so you write, this is, you know, quote, in, in conservation contexts, consumption nearly always means destruction. Rather than discussing the pleasures of eating well, much of the discourse about food in biodiverse environments seeks to eradicate or reorient consumption rather than to promote it, end quote. Um, and yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense, right? When we think about conservation, consumption is not a key term that springs to mind. But this really isn't the case, right, with coral conservation um, in Ishigaki. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how consumption, right? Um, promotion of consumption of sea life actually contributes to conservation efforts. Yeah, thank you for this question. I think in the context of thinking about, you know, the ways that we talk about sustainable seafood, for example, I think what's often invoked is, um, you know, the specter of loss more than anything else in transnational narratives about consumption. And the projects that I discuss in this chapter turn on very different sensibilities and they really focus in, uh, as you note, on these gustatory engagements with the sea. 
One of the projects involves these clams that are an endemic clam that are delicious. They're incredibly delicious. <laughs> They're also beautiful. Um, and the other is a fishing technology that has been resuscitated by um, the people in Shiraho alongside of WBF. And in each of these projects, working together and eating together are very significant aspects of the project that, that drive community interest. And this chapter only really makes sense when you consider um, the history of uh, attempted projects on the part of, of Coral Village, which really began with much more traditional protectionist kinds of, of initiatives. So the attempts to establish protected areas, for example, that fell flat um, and other kinds of uh, projects that really adopt the distancing practices that you see in WBF writ large in their projects. These projects are much more multisensorial. They draw primarily on taste and touch, and um, they are also very significant because for islanders, these projects both in different ways draw on the symbolism of the past. Mm. And it was as important for the success of these projects that they drew on uh, community and togetherness and bringing the community together in very important ways that were seen as distinct from what WWF was originally attempting to do in the village. So here eating becomes about so much more than just the gustatory appreciation of seafoods. Um, eating in these projects is communal it's convivial, it really requires a strong community to unfold. The labor that's required for these projects um, requires uh, you know, integrated sense of community in order to unfold as well. So these projects are about much more than these gustatory encounters, but for many of the people who were interested in them, the, the eating was an anchor for the projects and it really drew their interest in them as well. You know, again, what was interesting to local residents was not only the projects themselves, but just how much they contrasted with the early work of the center, which was much more focused on the global patrimony of the blue corals that are significant species that are located in the reef. And in contrast, these projects are really attuned to locally significant species that don't really have even national appeal. Um, people on the mainland don't tend to eat these clams um, for different reasons that I discussed in the chapter, but um, some of these tensions are really important to the success of these kinds of projects in Shiva. This idea of, you know, fostering community, um, you know, through through shared eating, these kind of projects, you talk about, um, you know, this, this um, you know, kind of ancient technology, right? Traditional technology of, of, of the fishing pools. Uh, I, I forget the, the, the term exactly. The Inkachi. Yeah. Um, right. How, how much of this is a, a community project, right? Um, and so that kind of brings me to my next question, um, which is to think a little bit about you as a anthropologist, as a part of this community or not, right? Um, and so one of the things that really struck me about this book is that you have these interstitial chapters. Um, and, you know, the way that these chapters work, you say, you know, they, quote, elaborate the various ways that residents find the Eno or near sea uh, to be a space for meaningful social, ideological, and material attachments, right, end quote. But um, there's also a way in which, you know, I think these short vignettes um, 
not only kind of open a window onto you know the the kind of social life of of the you know the villagers here but but also you know your own place within that community right it's in these chapters that we learn how you studied music led snorkeling tours right these kind of things um and so i'm i'm curious about why you felt the the need to include these you know these short uh, interstitial chapters and whether or not there was an effort um, to kind of foreground your own positionality through um, these chapters and why you might think that's important. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, there is definitely a tradition of these, uh, this format in ethnographies. I can think immediately Laura Ogden's work uh, as well as Anne Singh's work comes to mind. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really struggled with this. I think you probably recognized from your own book project how these projects just change and shift as they take shape over time and i primarily saw these chapters as doing what you initially said that they did um, which is to kind of paint a picture of the sea in a way that invites readers to themselves draw near to the sea that is significant for the conservation projects that then unfold there mm -hmm. As I was revising and editing the book and trying to kind of flesh out the narrative arc of the book, though, I saw that these, uh, I was, I thought that either these chapters needed to be collapsed into one chapter in which they kind of set the scene for what would unfold, or um, where I saw them maybe disappearing forever to, for readers who weren't interested in reading about that, but were more looking for the transnational conservation piece, which is really what I think the ethnography is mostly engaging with. Um, and it was tough for me to figure out what to do with these because for me, I spent so much time in the sea and on the sea and these understandings of how the ocean was significant to islanders were incredibly important for understanding the work that WWF was doing mm -hmm. in the village. And so um, trying to figure out how to bring them into the book in a way that kind of mirrored the significance that they had for me as a researcher and interpreter of what I saw, I ended up settling on this format. Um, you know, as an anthropologist, I think it is very important that we talk about our positionality and I do, in the introduction of the book, talk about my relationship to conservation. But I do think that in the interstitial chapters, you're able to see um, much more of the diversity of what it means to do, you know, sustained ethnographic research. I was in my field site for 18 months and I did all sorts of things in order to cultivate the kinds of relationships that would help me understand and unpack the work of this conservation organization. And so um, some of those things, I think my music teacher would be, um, yeah, anyway, I, I definitely, no one wants to hear me sing Okinawan traditional <laughs> songs. I have a terrible singing voice, but it was really important for me to be able to be in that space and to be learning some of the local language and to just uh, be able to have different kinds of multifaceted understandings of the ways that residents understood and engaged with their scene.
I, 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 I'm really glad that these chapters still made it into the book because I, I do think they, they do this really great thing of, you know, zooming in and out, um, you know, between the other chapters. And so it's, it's, it's performing something, right, that the book is talking about. And so it's very effective in that way, I think. That's great to hear. Yeah, and it's also important to just note that this is not, you know, conservation didn't just appear here. There's a right. long history of the way that mainlanders interact with Ishigaki and scientific research is most certainly a part of that. And that extends back uh, more than a century. So being able to nod to that um, was important, I think, for me. So um, you talked a little bit, uh, you know, a couple questions ago uh, about where your kind of current research is headed. Um, could you say a little bit more about, I mean, it seems you're staying within the kind of world of conservation. Is the sea, the ocean still a big part of that? Or do you feel like it's time to kind of move into a different direction? I am definitely sticking with the sea, hopefully. Uh, so that is work that I've actually already completed and is hopefully coming out um, pending journal submission practices these days, which are arrived in the pandemic. Right. Um, but my next my next uh, intensive field work will center on seafoods. And mm -hmm. I'm interested in thinking about saving and preserving <clears throat> in both gustatory and environmental contexts in my new project, which will be multi-sided, uh, located in Japan and Portugal. Mm -hmm. These are both nations in which their national cuisines are dominated by seafoods and the availability of beloved species is diminishing, unsurprisingly, um, because harvest, over-harvesting, warming oceans, um, all the things that face seafoods these days. So my questions really revolve around what enables sustainability to become important when it comes to seafoods. And I'm interested primarily in consumers and cooks and thinking about gustatory culture writ large. Um, so that's the, those are the broad contours of the project. Of course, I'm unable to conduct any field work um, on that project or really move it forward right now because of the pandemic. So uh, we'll see when it starts to grow legs, but um, Yes, I'm staying with the sea, sticking with the sea. It's been really fascinating talking to people, you know, from different um, different fields. You know, I feel like the pandemic has really affected everyone, obviously, right, within academia, but um, in, in many different ways, you know, like as somebody who works primarily on, on text, film, literature, things like that, I mean, it's certainly difficult, right, accessing certain things that you need, right? Um, obviously, you know, libraries are struggling and accessing materials can be difficult, but someone like you, right, who's within the field of anthropology to physically not be able to go <laughs> and conduct field work. I mean, that's that's the extreme challenge. So yeah, hopefully things will, will get better soon. Thank you. Yes, it's actually, the project is just at that stage where I really need to go and do mm -hmm. the field work. You know, I've spent enough time thinking about it. I did some preliminary field work and I've kind of settled on, for a while I was thinking about France instead of Portugal. And um, so I've spent a little bit of time trying to set the, the boundaries for the project. And it, it really is at that place where I just have to go and I can't go. And I don't think I'll be able to go this summer either, unfortunately. Yeah. So. 
we'll see. I'm occupying myself uh, with reading other things and um, attempting to move other things forward in the meantime. So. Great. Well, I have just one last question, um, and this is something I ask everyone. Uh, and so it's kind of a personal question, if, if that's okay. And for you, it's actually maybe less of a personal question because so much of your book is about <laughs> your own relationship with the sea. Um, but, you know, how would you characterize your relationship to the ocean? Just sort of, you know, in terms of your whole life, did you grow up near the ocean? Is it something that's always fascinated you? Or is this something that you've kind of turned to, um, you know, since entering academia? I actually grew up landlocked in Nebraska. <clears throat> and I didn't even see the sea until I was 13 years old. Since then, I guess you could say that I've been on a perpetual quest to have more of the sea in my life. I definitely prefer the tropics or the subtropics, but I'll honestly take any sea. I love the ocean. Um, I like the way it smells. I like the wind on my face. I like the vastness of the ocean. Um, yeah. And, and I like thinking about it as a cultural space because oftentimes we don't consider it to be as such. So lots of things to consider when it comes to the ocean. How about you, can I ask you? <laughs> sure. Um, I grew up, well, let's see. So the first part of my life, I, I grew up in upstate New York. And so um, the, you know, the Jersey shore was the place that I would go to, summer vacations, things like that. So I have very, very fond memories of the Jersey Shore. Um, but then, you know, the sort of second part of my, my younger years was spent landlocked in New Mexico. And I missed the ocean, um, you know, greatly. Uh, and so then I ended up in California uh, for college and have pretty much lived in proximity to the ocean ever since um, in one way or another. So. Yeah, it's, it's always a place that uh, has spoken to me. Um, you know, I feel very fortunate now to live so close to the water. Um, I think that's a big part of the reason that, you know, I, I wanted to do this podcast is because, you know, the ocean has just been really heavily on my mind, especially during the pandemic, right? Because it, in one way, um, you know, is a place that I can go, uh, you know, during these times, these sort of stay at home times, it's, you know, wide open space, you know, it seems like it's, it, it's somehow exempt from the sort of, you know, biopolitical uh, politics of, of, you know, being out in public right now during COVID. But, you know, at the same time, the beaches of Orange County have really become a, a kind of politicized place for people to go and sort of stand in opposition to stay at home orders and things like that. And so, it, it, it's really um, become very clear to me how it's it's become a, a you know this kind of cultural place in terms of um, the pandemic. Well, thank you. Um, that was that was great, and uh, I look forward to reading you know whatever the next research that comes out, the one that's currently under review. Hopefully, that'll that'll be out soon. Great, thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you, John. Drawing the Sea Near, Sato Umi and Coral Reef Conservation in Okinawa is available via University of Minnesota Press. My thanks again to Dr. C.N. Klaus for taking the time to speak with me.
Nature Mono is recorded and produced by me, John L. Pitt, with co-sponsorship support from the Humanities Center at the University of California, Irvine. Visit our website at naturemono, that's nature, M-O-N-O, dot com, and please subscribe and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.